Lord, thank you for that glimpse of heaven every Lord's Day that we hallow your name together. Lord, thank you for the reminders of the gospel, even as we sing to you. Lord, we pray that your gospel this morning, the eternal gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of your grace. God, we pray that it would run to and fro this morning and accomplish its purpose in our life and in this church. God, we pray and ask that your gospel would come this morning with power, with comforting power, with all the, the, the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus, that you would create faith, that you would encourage our souls this morning, that you would strengthen our love for Christ. Lord, we pray that you would make us hungry for your word. God, we amen that prayer this morning, that you would make us those Bereans who are eager to hear the word of the Lord and search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so, Lord. We ask that you would strengthen that in this church, Lord, that expectation to hear from you and that dil diligent search, God, making sure these things are according to your word. Lord, we ask that you would feed our souls this morning, that you would give us what is needed as we give attention to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to spend our time unpacking one verse <coughs> together this morning. Verse 8. And we're going to read that together. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. It's a simple verse, but I promise you, if you're not convinced already... There's more to this passage than what meets the eye. There's some deep, uh, there's some deep biblical truths that we're going to, uh, Lord willing, fill up our minds and fill up our hearts with this morning. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Perhaps this is one of the most surprising commandments in the New Testament, and, and here's why. Is, you know, on one hand, you know, as you, as you read this, at first glance, you're thinking, okay, what, what do I know about this, this commandment? Remember Jesus Christ. Well, I know 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul, and I know that this is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote toward the very end of his life. It's like the deathbed, deathbed speech of the Apostle Paul. It's like his final words to his protege, Timothy. His son in the faith. And in this letter, these final words, he's trying to seal some things on Timothy's conscience. Just impress some things, these final words, into this young man who's going to carry the torch for the Apostle Paul after he leaves this earth. After he's poured out like a drink offering. And in this letter, Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. And you're thinking on first glance, how could Timothy ever forget Jesus how could Timothy ever forget Jesus Christ? Timothy has given his whole life to serve in Jesus Christ. 
Timothy has given his whole life to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going everywhere in the New Testament, being sent here and there to strengthen the church of Jesus Christ. And so you're thinking at first glance, how in the world could Timothy ever forget Jesus? And yet, in these final words, these are almost certainly the final words that Timothy hears from the Apostle Paul. He says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. And the Bible often speaks of a type of remembering that's deeper than just uh, recalling intellectual facts. Like you would remember before you study to take a vocabulary test. The Bible often talks about a different kind of remembering. A faith-filled remembering. A remembering that leads to trust and reverence. And love for God. It's a faith-filled remembrance. This is all over the Bible, but it's, but it's uh, you know, really tightly packed in one book in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. This happens over, over five times, maybe close to ten, in the book of Deuteronomy where the people of God are called to remember. I'll give you just a few examples of these. Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Pause right there. Now just imagine that you are one of the ones who walked through the Red Sea dried up by the outstretched mighty arm of Yahweh. And on one hand you're thinking, I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. And yet God's word says, remember what happened to you. Remember it. Deuteronomy 8, 2. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Pause right there. Just imagine a pillar of of fire and a cloud leads you daily for 40 years. And you're thinking, man, I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. And yet God's word says, remember it. Deuteronomy 9, verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. The people of God have always been called to remember the work of the Lord. This is the same kind of remembrance that Jesus calls us to in the Lord's Supper. And and, and we give attention to this almost every week. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Not just these cold intellectual facts, but this faith-filled remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of remembrance that Paul calls the Ephesians church to in chapter 2, verse 12, when he tells them, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. In other words, let it dwell on, on your heart until it grips your soul and you remember that you are far off from Jesus. Don't forget that. This is exactly what Paul is calling Timothy to do in this verse when he says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. This is a reminder for every Christian in the room this morning that we are in a lifelong battle to remember Jesus Christ. To not forget him. To not grow cold to the person of Christ, the glorious work of Christ. We're in a lifelong battle to remember him. And this is a reminder to Timothy in this passage from his father in the faith. He said that he, don't put it on cruise control. 
Remember Jesus Christ. Fight the fight of faith. It's not enough to rest in a mere factual understanding of Jesus. You have to fight to remember him by faith. The things of Jesus have to be on the forefront of the mind. And overflowing from the human heart. Satisfying the human heart. This is the command. Remember Jesus Christ. But I want us to to think about it's also a blessing. In other words, like, man, this has got to be, on on one hand, the easiest command in the New Testament. You know, you you tell your kid to, um, uh, uh, you know, give his favorite toy to, you know, his little brother. And that's a hard commandment. You tell your kid, hey, I want you to eat that cotton candy right now. And he's like, man, it's the best commandment I've ever heard of in my whole life. That's a joyful commandment. I want you to think about it. Like, what a blessing that is to be commanded to remember Jesus Christ. All blessing and no burden. All blessing and no burden. It is a delight to remember Jesus Christ. And it is good for us. It is good for us. And we need to learn as followers of Jesus that we will never be happier at any point in our lives under any circumstances in this world than we are than we, when we are remembering Jesus Christ. And we are, when, when our minds and our hearts are full of faith-filled remembrance of Jesus Christ, the glorious Son of God. When Jesus and his gospel become background noise in the Christian life, we are living in a disordered state. That's not what we were made for, and that's not what we were redeemed for. That's out of order. But like a glove was made to be worn on the human hand, our souls were designed to be satisfied in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we were made for. It's to remember him, to worship him. And the Bible actually says that all things were made for Christ. That all things were made for the Lord Jesus. There are two things about Jesus that that Timothy is specifically told to remember in verse 8. One, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And two, that Jesus Christ is is the offspring of David. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And then Paul says, as preached in my gospel. In other words, he's given us two essential features of the one true apostolic gospel. Okay? And and when Paul says my gospel, let's make sure we have, you know, the right understanding there. It's not like, Paul has one gospel, Peter has his gospel, James has his gospel, you know, Pastor so-and-so has their gospel, you got your gospel. When Paul says my gospel, he says my gospel as he stands in the office of an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says this is my gospel, that's synonymous with this is the only gospel, okay? And some of the clearest places he clarifies this is in the, in the letter to the Galatians. In the first two chapters, he tells us several things about his gospel, the gospel of the Apostle Paul. I want to mention three of them to you very quickly. Number one, we're reminded that Paul's gospel is from heaven. It's, it has divine origin to it. And Paul 
he, he, he spends a lot of time in Galatians chapter 1 just staking the authority of this claim that he did not get his gospel from men, but he received his gospel as a revelation from Jesus Christ. And you need to understand that Paul came to understand the gospel in a different way than anyone in this room. It came directly from Jesus to the Apostle Paul. No middle step in between. Jesus delivered it directly to Paul. Divine origin. Number two, his gospel is apostolic. And we see this in Galatians chapter 2 that the Apostle Paul made this trip, this long trip in his ministry... To the holy city of Jerusalem and he laid his gospel before the Jerusalem apostles. Those who seemed to be pillars in the church in Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John. And he laid his gospel before them. And in Galatians 2 Paul says they didn't add anything to me. They added nothing to me. They said just remember the poor. And Paul said the very thing I was eager to do. In other words that meeting where he lays his gospel before the Jerusalem church. His, it's this claim that, that Peter didn't add anything to Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel is Peter's gospel. It's James' gospel. It's the apostolic gospel, one true gospel. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. His gospel's from heaven. His gospel's apostolic. And therefore, his gospel is exclusive. And you remember that language in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, if anybody ever comes to you and preaches a different gospel besides the one that I preach to you, he said, let him be cursed by God. Even if an angel from heaven comes and preaches a different gospel than Paul's gospel, the one true apostolic gospel, the same gospel as Peter, James, and John. That's another gospel, a false gospel. And Paul says, may he be damned, may he be cursed by God if he preaches another gospel. And so when Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.8 that these are two essential features of my gospel, we understand that to be these are two essential features of the one and only gospel. The one true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we are, we are reminded in verse 8 that both of these truths are part of the irreducible core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's risen from the dead and he is the offspring of David. This means the resurrection is part of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it also means that the Davidic covenant is part of the good news of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that you'll notice once you see it, once you understand it, in the book of Acts is when the apostles begin to announce that gospel, all over the book of Acts you see both of these features just flying off the pages. They go into a city and they preach Jesus risen from the dead. He's, he, he's alive. He reigns. He's at the right hand of God. He's Lord of all. And they go into those same cities and they're laboring from the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the descendant of David. Resurrection is part of the gospel and the Davidic covenant is part of the gospel. And this is Paul's reminder to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Now these two truths about Jesus risen from the dead and the descendant of David. 
they're more connected than you may realize. And, and I want us to meditate on them together this morning in reverse order so that you can see just how connected the Davidic promises are to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we're headed this morning. One of the things that you realize as you begin to study the Bible and read it for yourself is this strong relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament of promise and fulfillment. And you just think, you know, just think back. If you've been reading the Bible, studying the Bible for many years, think back to some of those early years when you first started to see this stuff about Jesus in Genesis or in Leviticus or in, or in the prophets. And, you, and, you're, and, and you're, your soul is encouraged like God said this and then he did it. Promise fulfillment. And that's all over the Old Testament. Promises made, promises kept in the New Testament, fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so I want us to focus this morning on one of those promises in the Old Testament. Promises made to King David in 2 Samuel 7. This has been rightly referred to as the Davidic covenant. Those, those holy, glorious, unbreakable promises that God made to the king of Israel, David. And I want us to understand by the time that we're done that the fulfillment of these 2 Samuel 7 promises are part of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. That's where we're going this morning. Take a hard left turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7, and we're going to spend some time unpacking uh, that text in just a moment. Before we get there, I want to pull in a little bit of the background that the Old Testament would give us about kings and kingdoms before we get to this oath, this covenant that God makes with the king of Israel, David. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we get the, blue, the blueprint or the plan that God has for this world. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we, right after we're told that Adam is made in the image of God and given this distinguished role in creation, he's given a mandate and a mission. He's told to take dominion over every created thing. He's told to rule on behalf of God and to extend that rule to the very ends of the creation. In other words, in Genesis chapter 1, we get the blueprint and God's plan for this world is that the kingdom of God will cover every square inch of this creation. And God will rule this world through his chosen representative. That's the plan from the very beginning. It started with Adam. He was given a kingly status and a kingly mandate. But we find out very soon... That God's chosen king has to always be in submission to God. He's going to rule the world on God's behalf. He's God's, uh, God's prince, God's ruler. And what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is that Adam is unfit to rule. He's unfit to be the king in the kingdom of God. Because he, because he's, because he will not submit to the word of God. And you could even summarize it like this. 
Adam failed the test in the garden. He couldn't rule the world on God's behalf because he couldn't even rule himself. He couldn't even rule over his own desires, much less rule the whole creation in God's name, on God's behalf. And so Adam is dethroned as the king in the kingdom and he's banished from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. And so sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3 and death through sin. And we have the stage set for what now? What now for the plans of God for this world? And what we see as we continue to read the Bible is that God's blueprint, God's plan for this world, it wasn't scrapped. It wasn't set to the side. It was reestablished. And God began to make promises of restoration that these, that these glorious promises would be fulfilled. You see this in the promises that God made to Abraham. God told Abraham that kings and nations would descend from his lineage. God told Abraham that through one of his offspring, there would be blessing that would be distributed to all the families of the earth. And so you got all the essentials are still there. There's still going to be a global blessing. All the peoples are going to be blessed and there's still going to be a king and there's still going to be a kingdom. And our, and our minds are, are focusing in on these promises as we read the Old Testament. By the end of Genesis, we have a prophecy in Genesis 49, verse 10. A prophecy about a descendant from Judah, from the tribe of Judah. This royal king is going to arise from Judah's line. And it says the scepter will not depart from him. That's royal language, that he's always going to rule. And, and Moses says in Genesis 49 that the obedience of all the people shall be unto him. In other words, we're going to have a global king. He's going to rule in God's name. And, and it's not just going to be an Israel thing or a Jewish thing. All the peoples are going to obey him. And so God's word has given us pro promises about kings and about his kingdom and about it being established in this world through his chosen representative. The law of Moses anticipates kings in Israel hundreds of years before there's actually kings in Israel. And so we read the books of Moses and there's, there's these laws for these kings, but it'll be four or five hundred years before there's actually the first king. And one place where you see this is in Deuteronomy 17. This has been called the law of the king. Moses teaches us the same thing that we learned by negative example in the Garden of Eden. God's king must always be subject to God's word. The rule of God's chosen king is only as secure to his obedience to the word of God. If God puts you as establishes you as king in the kingdom of God and you disobey God, he takes you out. He dethrones you. You're, you're removed. From that office. Well, this is what Moses says about the king in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. He tells us that the king of Israel was to make a handwritten copy of the law of the Lord, and he was to read in it, listen, all the days of his life, that he would learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law. Listen. That he may continue long in his kingdom. You want to rule 
in God's name, you want to rule in the kingdom of God, you always must be in submission to God's law. Now, 1 Samuel records that first king that's installed in Israel. And we're told in 1 Samuel that Israel actually makes a sinful choice. They want a king like all the other nations. They don't want Yahweh to be their king. And God gives them over to that sinful request. And he gives them a king just like all the other nations. King Saul. But we find out very quickly in 1 Samuel that Saul also was not fit to be the king in the kingdom of God. 1 Samuel 15. Samuel indicts Saul in the incident with the Amalekites. And he says this. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king in Israel. Same thing we learned in the Garden of Eden. Same thing we were warned about in the law of Moses. We have this negative example in Saul. And then the, and then the immediate background for this covenant with David is we have the counterpart to Saul is that God finds a man after his own heart. His name is David. David is made king. The kingdom is given to David. The spirit of God is taken from Saul and placed upon David. He is made the Lord's anointed. He is God's chosen. The chosen one through whom God will rule Israel. He is God's king over God's kingdom. And then in 2 Samuel 7, we see these promises that God makes to David the king. And these are the promises that are going to shape the rest of redemptive history and provide the framework of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's read the Davidic covenant together. 2 Samuel 7, and we'll read the first 16 verses this morning. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. 
from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established Forever. And this is the contours of the Davidic covenant. Now I want us to dive into this together this morning. Verses 1 and 2 give us the immediate setting. The king, King David, has rest from all of his enemies. And that's what kings are supposed to do, by the way. What do God's kings do? They just sit on the throne and take stuff from people? God's kings are supposed to be the ones that defeat God's enemies, that that subjugate the enemies of the people of God. And that's exactly what David did. Two chapters before this, David has subjugated the the long enemy of the people of God, the Philistines. And he he has subjugated the enemies of the people of God, and he's got rest all around him. He's doing what God's kings are supposed to do. And not only did he conquer the Philistines, he took the, 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 the city that would become the holy city, Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 5, he took it from the Jebusites. That's going to become the city of David, the city of Zion. It's going to become a centerpiece of Old Testament theology. The promises of God made in the Old Testament. So the king has rest. He's defeated the enemies of the people of God. And now he's looking for a place For the ark of God to to dwell in. A fitting place for the ark of God. The ark of the Lord is a symbolic picture of the presence of God in Israel. And in the the very preceding chapter, chapter 6, 2 Samuel 6. That ark has now been brought in to that newly possessed holy city, the city of Zion. David brings it in and he's saying, man, the ark's in a tent. Let's let's get a fitting place for the the symbol of the presence of God in Israel. And he basically says, I want to build God a house. I want to build a house for the Lord. As God responds to David's desire, one of the things that God is doing is he's establishing, as God responds to David at the beginning of Verses 4 through about verse 10. As he's establishing this fact. I'm the one that provides for you David. You don't provide for me. And he recounts all the faithfulness. And all the steadfast love. That David had received. As Yahweh the Lord his God had cared for him. And and, and you have this great reversal. In verse 11. Where God responds back to David. And he says, moreover, the Lord declares for you that the Lord will make you a house. 
Jay had this great reversal. David says, God, I want to build you a house. And the Lord says, no, I'll do the providing here. I don't need you to provide for me. I'm not like one of these little puny ancient Near Eastern gods that need you to feed me and build houses for me. You know, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. I'll do the providing here. How about this? I'll build you a house, David. David, you want to build me a house? I will be the one to build you a house. This is the essential promise of the Davidic covenant that the God who can never lie has promised to give David a house. Now that word house, there's obviously a play on words in this chapter. That, that word can mean different things. And when David says, God, I want, you, I want to build you a house, he means a temple, a place to put the ark in. But when God responds back and God says, I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to build you a house. He doesn't mean I'm going to build David a nice castle. Okay, he's not talking about a physical structure. He's talking about a people. In other words, the promise here that God makes to David is God is promising David a kingdom, a people, a dynasty. And you can see this in verse 16. Where the words house and kingdom are set in parallel to each other. He says this, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And so God promises David here a kingdom, a kingdom. I want you to see three more truths about the Davidic covenant. Number two, we are told that David's kingdom will never end. It will be an eternal kingdom. You see this in verse 16. Twice in verse 16, we have that little word forever. And you should circle that in your Bible. In other words, he doesn't just say uh, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, David. Like it'll be a dynasty that'll last 400 years. He says it will be made sure forever before me. And then he says it again. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. And so God promised. Th think about how unique this is in the world that we live in. There's never been a forever kingdom ever in the history of this world. But God tells David, I'm going to give you a forever kingdom, a kingdom that never, ever, ever ends. And we know this. It's so one of the you know, clearest lessons from history is that kingdoms rise and then they what? And then they fall. Kingdoms rise and then they fall. The Lord God sets up kings and the Lord God takes down kings over and over and over again. All the great accomplishments of the powerful regimes of human history. You know, the pyramids in Egypt and all the dynasties, the pharaohs and the Egyptian dynasties. They're museums now. That's all they are. At the height of their power, they were ruling the known world. But now they're fallen. They are no more. The same with... The, the, all the rulers uh, in, in Babylon, all the men of great names, the rulers in Nineveh, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, all, all the emperors of the Roman Empire, and the thousand years of the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, the thousand years of this empire, and now it's tourist attractions all over North Africa and, 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 and you know, the Mediterranean world. It's just tourist attractions. Their power is no more. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And so listen, what God is promising to David 
in 2 Samuel 7 is the same thing that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 4. Remember that vision where you have the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, that Daniel saw. And it's interpreted as these four kingdoms, these mighty kingdoms. One will replace the other and replace the other and replace the other. And then we're told about this stone cut without human hands. The king, it's called the kingdom of the Most High. And it smashes into pieces the kingdoms of this earth. In other words, all the mighty kingdoms that ever were, they're going to fall. And there's going to be one kingdom, the kingdom of the Most High, that lasts forever. David has promised the same thing that Daniel saw, the kingdom of the Most High. This is the same thing that's announced all over the Gospels when the celebration begins, that the kingdom of God has drawn near. This is what David is being promised in 2 Samuel 7. He's being promised the kingdom of God, the forever kingdom, not the kingdom that lasts a long time and then goes away, but the kingdom that never ends. Number three, this kingdom will be for all mankind. It's not just going to be a Jewish thing. It's not just going to you know, uh, stay within the borders of Israel. Look at verse 19. As David is responding back to the Lord from these glorious promises, he says this. You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And then he says this, this is instruction for mankind. You go back and just trace that word out. That's the word for everybody. That's not the word for Israel. That's the word for all the nations. In other words, listen, the Davidic covenant is going to be the framework through which God deals with all mankind, all the nations of the earth. Number four, David's kingdom will be secured by the coming of David's seed. This singular, promised, individual ruler. And verses 12 through 14 tell us four things about this coming son of David. Number one, verse 12 tells us that he will be from David's own lineage. Not, you know, uh, adopted from outside the family. But he's going to come from David's own DNA. In other words, the glorious promises of God. We've seen it before. They get you know, zoned in on the family of Abraham. They get zoned in again on the tribe of Judah. And now they get zoned in again on the family of David. If you want to see these promises burst into fulfillment, then your eyes need to be fixed on the household, the dynasty, the offspring of King David. Number two, verse 13, we are told that this son of David will build a house for Yahweh. He's the one that's going to build the house for the Lord. Verse 13 also tells us that God will establish the, the throne of this coming son of David. The throne of this coming son is the throne that will be established forever. And so not only is David promised a forever kingdom that will never end, when God says he's going to establish the throne of this coming son, we're promised a forever king, a forever king, a forever kingdom. And then in verse 14, 
David is told that this son of David will also be the son of God. God will be a father to him. God will be a father to him. So in summary, the Davidic covenant promises a forever king, a forever kingdom secured by the coming of a forever king. And and you read in the Old Testament, you say, man, that sounds amazing. Let's see that promise burst into fulfillment. Well, the rest of the Old Testament tracks how these Davidic promises unfold. Israel experiences great blessing under David's son who, who rules after David dies, Solomon. In fact, the reign of David and the reign of Solomon are the height. This is as good as it gets in the Old Testament. After sin, the reign of Solomon, uh, the early reign of Solomon, that's, that's, as, that's as good as it gets. But the latter reign of Solomon shows us that Solomon is not the promised forever king. We are told that he makes political alliances with these foreign rulers and enters into these marriages. And these, these wives that Solomon takes, they turn his heart away from who? The Lord God, away from Yahweh. Now remember, the law of the kingdom is what? If you want to be king in the kingdom of God, you have to be subject to who? God, you're always ruling on his behalf. You're always subject to his word. And so Solomon's heart turns away from the Lord. And what happens to him? Well, what happens to him is exactly what was promised to David in verse 14. He is disciplined with the stripes of men. He is disciplined with uh, the rod of men. And so Solomon begins to fill these promises, but he's not the fulfillment. It's not the ultimate. It's found in Solomon. There's got to be a true and better, a true son of David, a true Solomon to fulfill these promises. Because of Solomon's sin... Every tribe in Israel, except for Judah, is taken away from the house of David. Now, imagine watching these promises. Promises made, 2 Samuel 7. One generation, every tribe except one is now taken away from him. You're saying, man, this ain't looking so good. These promises aren't looking so good. But for the sake of his servant David, God grants that the Davidic kings remain on the throne Ruling over the tribe of Judah. This is the southern kingdom as we read the rest of the Old Testament. Now, 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, they show us the continuing cycles of kings of Judah, kings in David's line, sitting on David's throne, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember the law of the kingdom, Genesis 2, Deuteronomy 17. It's confirmed in, you know, Saul being removed as king. You can't sit on David's throne and disobey David's God. And so what happens is that 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, they trace the promise made to David all the way to the exile Of the people of God. Eventually God decrees judgment upon Judah. And in 586 BC. We're told the holy city was sacked. Jerusalem was sieged and sacked. There's a whole book in the Old Testament. Called Lamentations. That's the funeral dirge. Mourning the death of the city of God. This chosen city. We're told that the people of Judah. uh, The temple was burned. And that the people of Judah. Were taken into Babylonian captivity. And when that happened, they lost the kingship. Those promises that God made to David, that David's son would sit on David's throne. Now all of a sudden we got a huge problem 
Because we got Babylonian pagan kings now ruling over David's house. And so we have this tension that is said. This final king of David's line in the Old Testament. Jehoiachin is his name. Jehoiachin. And he's taken into exile. Put in prison in Babylon. And you're reading the Old Testament. And you're thinking, man, the Davidic promises just got buried. They are no more. God promised a forever kingdom. God promised a forever king. And now we got pagans ruling over the people of God. What of God's promises? And so as there's the Old Testament draws to a close, there's this great tension regarding these promises that God made to David. And a great place to see this is Psalm 89. You can go back and study this later. This will be Great for you to meditate on this afternoon. But in Psalm 89, the first half, he's recounting all the promises that God made to David. He's celebrating them. God, you made David the highest of the kings of the earth, the firstborn of all creation. You established his throne forever. So he's just recounting all those promises that we just read in 2 Samuel 7. And then halfway through that psalm, he begins to lament as he looks all around him. The people of God are in exile. And he begins to mourn. And he says things like this, that his crown is thrown into the dust, that his throne has been has been cast to the ground. And then he lands with this lament language. And you've seen it all over God's word. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? You know what that is? That's that's the tension between God. You said this. And yet everything around me, I'm seeing this. And he begins to cry out, how long, O Lord? From the moment of exile all the way to the New Testament period, the people of God remain under foreign rulers. Started with the Babylonians. Then they were ruled by the Persians. Then the Jews were ruled by the Greeks. Then the Jews were ruled by the Romans. And so when we get to the New Testament, we're still in that same period. How long, O Lord, are these promises that you made to David? Are they going to die forever? At this point, at the beginning of the New Testament, there hasn't been a Davidic son on David's throne for over 400 years. And so the cry of the people of God is, how long, O Lord? And this is where we see that strong promise fulfillment relationship between the Old Testament and the New. Did you know that the very first words of your New Testament read this way? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of David. In other words, these promises have been sitting dormant for centuries. And the very first word to the people of God in the New Covenant and in the New Testament is he's David. David's son is finally here. Jesus Christ, the son of David. The angel Gabriel announces the birth of Jesus. As the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Luke chapter 1 verse 32. He says this. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob 
forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so we have this great tension and then this great celebration in the incarnation of Jesus. That the promises that God made to David are about to burst into fulfillment. At the beginning of the Gospels, there's, there's celebration, a burst of celebration. But we come to a tension point again at the end of the Gospels. The Davidic covenant, again, seems to be in danger. I want you to fast forward to the very end of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And what do we learn? We are told that the son of David is captured by his enemies. That's not supposed to happen with God's king. God's king is God's anointed. God's king has God's spirit. What happens when the enemies of God face God's king? Well, things like the spirit of the Lord rushing upon Samson and he grabs the jawbone of a donkey and he slaughters hundreds in a moment. That's what happens when you stand against God's king. Or the celebration song in Israel, Saul has killed thousands and David has killed ten thousands. That's what happens when God, God's enemies challenge God's king. They lose. But at the end of the Gospels, we have this, this, this problem, this tension that God's king is captured, overpowered by his enemies. And the Romans mock him as he's imprisoned, as they beat him and spit upon him. We're told that they mock him with these words, Hail, king of the Jews. They mock him with kingship language. Look what kind of king you are. You can't even defeat your enemies. As they're spitting upon our Savior, as they're mocking him, hail the king of the Jews. Hail him, bow down to him. Not only is he captured by his enemies, we're told at the end of the Gospels that the son of David is then crucified. And not only do the Romans mock him, the Jews mock Jesus. As he hangs there in agony and they mock him again with kingship language. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from that cross. If he's the anointed one, if he's the true son of David, let him come down from that cross. He saved others, can he not save himself? Not only is the son of David crucified, the son of David dies. He gives his final breath. He gives his life. The Gospels tell us that there was a sign over Jesus as he dies, as he's crucified. And that sign read these words. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. Again, mocking language. You believe in David's son? You believe in a forever kingdom? You believe in a forever king. You think this is the son of David. The sign over him is this is your king. And he's dead, dead, dead. The son of David not only dies. The son of David is buried. And I want you to see the tension here. What of the promises of God? What of God's unbreakable oath to David? As they place the body of Jesus in the tomb. I want you to understand that what it seems like 
is that the, the Davidic covenant is being buried with the body of Jesus Christ. All the hope of the world has died. All the hope of the world has now been stuffed into a tomb. And all the promises that God made to David have now been buried with Jesus. The son of David is dead. And again, we have that lament language. What about 2 Samuel 7? What about the forever reign? What about God's unbreakable oath to David? I mean, just take up that same words of Psalm 89. God, you said that you would make him the firstborn. God, you said that you would make him the highest of all the kings of the earth. But now his crown is thrown into the dust. And his body is about to rot in the tomb. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Into the fulfillment of these promises. In the Old Testament, the people of God never received an answer to that question. It was left as a tension point for the people of God. But I want us to rejoice this morning that the gospel actually answers that question. As we respond back in the tension of these promises, how long, O oh Lord, all the Gospels answer that question. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, three days. That's how long? Three days. We are told three days until the reversal of all reversals. In the same way that the exile showed us that the promises of David are in this tremendous tension. The, the, the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus Christ. This is the, the, the promises of David are mown to the ground. But the gospel says three days until the reversal. Three more days until the Davidic king sits on his glorious eternal throne. Three days until the cut down son of David rises as Lord of all the earth. And that's exactly what happened. We're told that Christ was raised on the third day, 1 Corinthians 15, in accordance with the scriptures. It's just like God said. It's just like God, God promised it and then God fulfilled it in the person of Jesus Christ. And in the same way that we think about the burial of Jesus is like burying the Davidic covenant, all the promises, the resurrection. When Jesus came out of the tomb, it's like he grabbed all those promises and he drug them out with him into a glorious fulfillment. There will be a Davidic king on the throne. He will reign forever. His kingdom will never come to an end. And it's not just that Christ rose. It's that he rose never to die again. He rose into indestructible, glorified, new humanity. He rose never to die again. And so what I want you to understand is the connection between these two truths. The offspring of David and his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection on the third day is how that word forever in 2 Samuel 7 is fulfilled. How do we have a forever kingdom? How do we have a forever king? Well, it's, how we have a forever king is Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and entered into indestructible life, never to die again. This is why he situates these phrases side by side with each other when Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached 
in my gospel. And so I want us to meditate. I want us to rejoice in this. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the means by which the Davidic covenant was fulfilled. I'll read it again. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. God promised to raise up the son of David and that he would enter into this forever reign. And that's exactly what God did in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the means by which Jesus takes the Davidic throne. It's the means by which he enters his forever reign. And the apostles, as they preach the gospel in Acts, they actually make this connection. Acts 13, verse 32, And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled, listen, by raising Jesus. By raising Jesus. His resurrection proves that he is the chosen offspring of David. The resurrection of Jesus is a vindication of his innocence. Remember that law that we noticed several times. The king must be subject to God's word. And so the resurrection leaves us in no doubt that Jesus' suffering wasn't for his own sins. He wasn't cast off like Adam. He wasn't banished from the garden like Adam. He wasn't cast off like Saul. He wasn't rejected because he rejected the word of the Lord. Rather... This son of David suffered not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. The promised Messiah. He's the true king of the kingdom of God. And his resurrection shows that he is the one fit to reign by his perfect submission to the law of God. He never sinned. And not only was he obedient, the Bible tells us that he was obedient to the point of death. The temptation of Jesus shows us he'd rather starve than sin. The crucifixion shows us he'd rather be crucified than sin against his God. He was obedient to the point of death. And in the resurrection, the father raises his sinless son, the sinless son of David. It's a vindication of Jesus's of Jesus's righteousness. But the resurrection is also. And I would argue the New Testament places the most emphasis here. The resurrection is the moment of the enthronement of Jesus. It's, the, it's like a coronation ceremony where all the promises now burst into fulfillment. Where Christ is crowned Lord of all as he's raised from the dead. I'll mention just several of these. Matthew 28, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he, he addresses his disciples with this phrase. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's got it all now. All the power, all the right to rule and all the power to have global dominion has now been given to the risen son of David. Matthew 28. As the apostles preach the gospel in Acts chapter 2, they, they make this point that in the resurrection of Jesus, you Israel, the one you crucified, God has now made him both Lord and Christ. He's king. He's king. At the resurrection, Philippians 2 tells us that there was this 
you know, glorious descent of the Son of God, even unto the obedience of death. And there was this reversal in Philippians 2. Therefore, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that, it, that was above every name. That at his resurrection, Jesus was given the name Lord. And he, and he, was, and he was given the right and, the, and even the prophecy that every knee will bow to him. And every tongue, listen, every tongue in the whole creation will confess that Jesus, the resurrected King, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans chapter 1 tells us that at the resurrection of Jesus, that he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness. Romans 14 says this so clearly. Paul, Paul basically answers this question. Hey, why was Jesus raised? And Paul says to be Lord of all. Romans 14 verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The resurrection seals it. For all time this world has a king. His name is Jesus. It's not an Israel thing. It's not a Jewish thing. It's the plan for all mankind. It is God's only chosen king. And he's now seated on the throne. Remember, remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead means remembering him as Lord. As Lord, the king of the kingdom of God. And these two, these two truths go together and they're so glorious. The resurrection and enthronement of Jesus. The tomb is empty, but the throne is not. Okay, and, and, there's a, and, and there's an inverse relationship here. If the tomb wasn't empty, then the throne would still be empty. If he was in the tomb, he couldn't be king. But because the tomb of Jesus is empty, the throne of David is occupied. There's somebody sitting on the throne of David, the resurrected son of God. What God promised... He fulfilled. One of the glories of the Christian gospel, and maybe you're here this morning as a skeptic or an unbeliever, and man, this, this could be said by so many people in this room, but one of the glories of the Christian gospel is the fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, it's one thing if we're just kind of making up stuff and just saying, yeah, Jesus did this, Jesus did this. It's like, oh, oh, let's just write that back here, making up stuff. It's another thing when we have ancient text, thousands, 500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. Promises made, God's on the hook, his people are mourning. When are these promises going to be fulfilled? And then, boom, they burst into fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. God told us these things beforehand so that when they happen, you would believe them. That it would carry the weight of ancient words bursting into fulfillment. God said that the son of David would be raised and sit on the throne. And that's exactly what has happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we bless your name today.
God, we thank you for the grace that you've given us in the last hour together to consider the most precious name, the name above every name, the most glorious things that could ever be told, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would minister comfort to your people, encouragement to our souls. God, we pray that you would create faith as we give attention to your word and that you would strengthen our love for our Savior. Help us to remember you rightly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.